You're listening to A Scary State. This is all you. Oh, wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Okay, hold on. You're listening to A Scary State, a podcast where we talk about- Nora, what are you doing? Wait, this is what I'm on. Isn't this what we're supposed to no. be? No. You're listening to A Scary State, and this week we're covering- Oh, God. <laughs> I can't do it. Okay. You're listening to A Scary State, and this week we're covering New Jersey. So, Lauren? Yes, Nora. Let's get scary. (laughs) Okay. This is the second episode we're recording today, which is the first time we've ever done this, so... Sorry if we're a little all over the place, but that's just how it be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... So, Tell us some state facts. So as Nora said, we're covering New Jersey. (laughs) So some state facts. New Jersey, nicknamed the Garden State, joined the Union on December 18th, 1787, and became the third state in the U.S. Um, It was named after the Isle of Jersey, which was in the English Channel. So some weird laws. If you're having sex in a car and the horn goes off, the couple could face jail time. Wow. Um, In Newark, no one is allowed to purchase ice cream after 6 p.m. unless they have a doctor's note. Someone was lactose intolerant who came (laughs) up with that one. And, okay, what does TWP stand for? Oh, I've seen this before. All right, I'm going to cut this out. I I just wrote TWP. Why didn't I write the whole thing? Township. That's what I thought, but it didn't make sense because there's no S. Okay. (laughs) You have to keep that in. In Haddon Township, you are not allowed to annoy someone of the opposite sex, as it is illegal. Hmm. I live with two men right now. They would both be in jail. Yeah, they would. My brother and my fiancé, so I don't sound weird. (laughs) All right. (laughs) New Jersey is home to the first boardwalk in America, Atlantic City. Jersey Shore? Jersey, no. I wonder if that's in Atlantic City. I went to Jersey Shore, actually. My cousins lived really close to there. Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't see anything. We just, like, walked on that boardwalk. Um, the oldest working lighthouse in America is in New Jersey at Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook Light. Um, and as many people know, if you live in New Jersey, you don't pump your own gas, which mm-hmm. is so weird. Um, and, oh, this is cool. You can go to the site where Alexander Hamilton took his last breath after his gun duel with Aaron Burr. Wow. Have you seen Hamilton? I have not. <gasps> you Nora, have? Laura, yes. I want to, but it's always sold out. Well, have you seen it on um, Disney Plus? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, my gosh. Okay, it's that's going to be another movie night. Yes. Okay. We already have A Woman in the Window because Lauren and I read the book, and I loved it. So, so good. And the movie just came out, so we're watching that soon. Mm-hmm. So we'll add that. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm going to sing along with the entire thing, and I apologize. <laughs> All right. So the original Friday the 13th was filmed in Blairstown, New Jersey. The night before Halloween in New Jersey is known as Mischief Night. And not many people outside of New Jersey know that it's called that. Like, I've never referred to the night before Halloween as Mischief Night. I haven't either. But that's what my grandma calls it, and she grew up in New Jersey. Really? Mm -hmm. And in New Jersey, there have been five identified serial killers and one unidentified serial killer. (laughs) So now that we know a little bit about New Jersey, Nora, what are you covering? The Jersey Devil. So. I knew it had to come sometime. (sighs) You've heard of this? Oh my gosh, yes. I've never heard of this. Really? Ever. Oh my gosh. The reason I didn't cover it was because I thought it was so well known. Oh my gosh. I literally had never heard of it before. And I was like reading all about it. I'm like, am I? Like, what? What is this? I think it's so funny the different like things you and I know about different things. Yeah, that's so true. 
Um, but the Jersey Devil, not to be confused with the New Jersey Devils hockey team, which received its name from the Jersey Devil, Go Caps, is a legendary creature said to inhabit the Pine Barrens of South Jersey. The Pine Barrens are a coastal area of South Jersey made up, to, made up of seven counties along the coast. Also, the Jersey Devil is commonly referred to as the Leeds Devil as well, as, as well, and we'll get into why later. The creature is often described as a flying ostrich with hooves, but there are many variations. Gross. <laughs> the common description is that of an ostrich-slash-kangaroo-like with a horse or goat-like head, leathery bat-like wings, horns, small arms with clawed hands, legs with cloven hooves, and a forked tail. Ew. <laughs> I know. The tail definitely gives it a strong devil appearance because it's like a forked shape. Yeah. Um, and it's been reported to move quickly and is often described as emitting a high-pitched, blood-curdling scream. Oh, a no. Uh, <laughs> According to popular folklore from the 1700s, the Jersey Devil originated with a Pine Barrens resident named Jane Leeds, known as Mother Leeds. Do you know this part? Oh, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. Yes, I know a lot about the Jersey Devil. Oh, my gosh. But I am i haven't heard any, like... I there was a podcast I listened to about it a while ago, so I remember some of the stuff. But oh, I'm sure I'm excited to see what else you'll be telling I, me. My mind is blown. I have never. I mean, the scariest thing I knew that came out of New Jersey was Jersey Shore. <laughs> so, <But I'm> <laughs> the legend states that Mother Leeds has twelve children, and after finding she was pregnant for the thirteenth time, cursed the child in frustration, crying that the, the child would be born the devil. I guess it's because it's th the 13th child yep. um, and 12 kids is too many, but... And then unlucky number 13. Yeah, exactly. In 1735, Mother Leeds was in labor on a stormy night while her friends gathered around her. Born as a normal child, the 13th child changed to a creature with hooves, a goat's head, bat wings, and a forked tail, which, surprise, surprise, is exactly what the current day Jersey Devil or Leeds Devil after the Leeds family apparently resembles. How terrifying. <sighs> Imagine seeing that flying in the air. No, thank you. And it's like major Lord of the Ring vibes or like something very creepy. I have family that lives up in New Jersey and we went up to go visit them a couple years ago and we drove like near the Pine Barrens. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so oh. my grandma was telling me about it. Wow. We should have had her on this one. <laughs> I knew. Oh, well, we'll get to that in my story. Ooh. Okay. The child came out growling and screaming, and it beat everyone with its tail before flying up the chimney and heading into the pines. In some versions of the tale, Mother Leeds was supposedly a witch and the child's father was the devil himself, which I like that version better because like, it's like the child took after its mom and dad rather than being like a <laughs> random freak of nature. Um, but some versions of the legend also state that there was subsequently an attempt by local clergymen to exhort the creature from the pine barrens mm. also there really was a leeds family in this exact time period and they were in southern new jersey and there was a southern new jersey town called leeds point where the leeds devil name was derived from oh but the woman who existed in that time period her name was deborah leeds and she had a husband named jaffet leeds and together they had 12 children in 1736 so that part's like True. Very compatible with the legend. Huh. Deborah and Jafet lived in Leeds Point section of what is now Atlantic County, New Jersey, which is where the Jersey Devil had been frequently sighted. 
Another origin of the story could be traced back to Colonel Southern New Jersey political disputes that became the subject of folklore and gossip among the local population. According to historian Brian Regal, this folk legend evolved through the years because of a dispute between Benjamin Franklin and one of his rivals, Daniel Leeds. Yeah, Ben Franklin. <laughs> ben Franklin described Daniel Leeds' family as, quote, monsters and other evil negative descriptions of him, and eventually he was called the Leeds Devil, and his name evolved into a description of the Jersey Devil. Wow. So it's kind of harsh. I know. It's up to you about which folklore you believe the most, but I will say that if I were alive in the 1730s and I saw Ben Franklin holding a kite and taking some nonsense, like had a kite up in the air trying to create electricity, I would be like, yo, this man cray cray. (laughs) Just saying. So let's talk about the Jersey Devil sightings. Okay. A newspaper from 1887 describes sightings of a winged creature referred to as the Devil of Leeds, allegedly spotted near the Pine Barrens and well-known among the local population of Burlington County, New Jersey. The newspaper article said, quote, Whenever he went near it, it would give a most unearthly yell that frightened the dogs. It whipped at every dog on the place. That thing, said the witness, is not a bird nor an animal, but it's the Leeds Devil. And it was born over in Evesham, Burlington County, a hundred years ago. There's no mistake about it. I never saw the horrible critter myself, which, okay. Yeah. But I just described it. Yeah. But I can remember well when it was roaming around in Evesham woods 50 years ago. And when it was hunted by men and dogs had shot at the best marksmen. And dogs and shot by the best marksmen there were all South New Jersey but could not be killed. So they're shooting at it. Yeah. And it's not. It's just still flying around. There isn't a family. You always wind back like you look like you're going to do such a big cough. And you go, I know this lady, she sneezes literally. That's too cute. I'm like, no one's that cute. (laughs) Ma'am. Oh, she's the sweetest person ever. She works for my mom. um, Well, with my mom. And she like makes the lunches each day. Uh She's just the sweetest woman ever. But yeah, her sneeze is just. Wow. You're like, oh. Mine is literally like. (gasps) (gasps) Like the biggest buildup. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> there isn't a family in Burlington or any of the adjoining counties that does not know of the Leeds Devil, and it was the bugaboo to frighten children with when I was a boy, end quote. Another claim sighting happened in Hanover Millworks when a man named Stephen Decatur sighted a flying creature and fired a cannonball directly upon it, but it didn't die and nothing happened to it. So very similar to them trying to shoot it out of the sky. So this is going to be a super stupid question, but like... If you get hit with a cannonball, what's supposed to happen to you? Does it like I mean, it's like blowed or the way I I think it would just like completely shatter something because it's like through you. Yeah, because it's supposed to have like so much power and it's such a big object. Yeah. So it's its purpose, like you know, in war was to just like completely um, like destroy things. I think of Pirates of the Caribbean and how it like comes out of the side of the ship and just destroys the other ship. But, like, I always wonder, like, you know, if you're shooting it at something. Yeah. That's probably a really stupid question, but it Maybe was on he, my mind. Maybe all he had was a cannon at that time. So all you like, have, just dragging around I know. <laughs> Hey, it was the 1700s. You never know. Another account was made by Joseph Bar- Barnaparte, who was the oldest brother of Napoleon Bonaparte. He claimed to have seen the Jersey Devil while, while hunting in his estate in 1820. During 1840, the Jersey Devil was blamed for several livestock killings. 
Similar attacks were reported in 1841, accompanied by tracks and screams. Then in December of 1925, a local farmer located in Greenwich, New Jersey, shot an unidentified animal as it attempted to steal his chickens. Apparently, he took a photo of the corpse and showed it to over 100 people, and no one could identify what it was. Oh, geez. Which is interesting, because, like, there were so many accounts of people trying to shoot the Jersey Devil, and it didn't die. So yeah. it's like, how could it die now? Yeah, good point. Um, the heaviest time period of Jersey Devil sightings was in 1909. Hmm. That year alone, there was a ton of reported sightings of the Jersey Devil, especially during the week of January 16th through 23rd of 1909. How random. I know. Newspapers published hundreds of claimed encounters with the Jersey Devil from all over the state. Among alleged encounters publicized that week were claims the creature attacked a trolley in Haddon Heights and a social club in Camden. Police in Camden and Bristol, Pennsylvania, supposedly fired on the creature, but nothing happened. Other reports were initially about unidentified footprints in the snow, but soon sightings of creatures resembling the Jersey Devil were being reported throughout South Jersey and as far away as Delaware and Western Maryland. Dang, that's like near our neck of the woods. I know, getting a little too close for comfort. (laughs) The widespread newspaper coverage created fear throughout the Delaware Valley, prompting a number of schools to close and workers stayed home. What? Vigilante groups and groups of hunters roamed the pines and countrysides in search of the devil, and it's even rumored that during this period, the Philadelphia Zoo posted a $10,000 reward for the creature. Oh my gosh, this is intense. I know. People were literally losing it. I didn't know it was this big. I know. The offer led to a variety of hoaxes, including a kangaroo equipped with artificial claws and, a, and bat wings. Oh, the poor like, thing. I know. People are literally dressing up a kangaroo to look like the devil. Oh, my <laughs> God. so mean. At the and end, kangaroos are scary. Oh, Have yeah. you seen some pictures of, like, the jacked kangaroos? Yeah, and they can, like, completely, like, their kick can oh, yeah. kill you. Yeah. Yeah, they're, like, very buff and, like, they're, they can be mean. They're scary mm-hmm. looking. But at the end of the day, there are no photographs, no bones, no hard evidence whatsoever of the Jersey Devil. So don't worry. You're probably safe at home. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) It may seem silly that I'm telling you you're safe from the Jersey Devil, but some people need to hear it. Um, Especially after one guy, Tom Brown Jr., spent a few seasons living in the wilderness of the Pine Barrens. And while he was there, on multiple occasions, terrified hikers mistook him for the Jersey Devil. Oh, no. He did, like, he did cover his body in mud to repel mosquitoes. Sir. I know. So it's like, I would be scared if I saw that. I wouldn't think it was the Jersey Devil, but I would think it was something that shouldn't be there. Um, But yeah, he reportedly had that issue. Um, there's also a group in South Jersey called the Devil Hunters who refer to themselves as, quote, official researchers of the Jersey Devil. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I picture them, like, with a little, like, what's it called? Note. What's it called where you hold things? Clipboard. <laughs> a what's clipboard? it where you hold things? <laughs> clipboard. <laughs> they spend their free time collecting reports, visiting historic sites, and going on night hunts in the Pine Barrens in order to quite... In, in order to, quote, find proof that the Jersey Devil does in fact exist. I feel like just walking in the Pine Barrens at night in general would be terrifying. Yeah. Add on the fact that you're looking for this monster devil type thing. No yeah. thanks. You do you, boo. But you do you. That's not what I'm doing in my free time. <laughs> 
Whether you believe the Jersey Devil was the 13th child of the Leeds family or Ben Franklin's worst enemy or something else, it was entertaining to read about the literal mass hysteria that this folklore created, and I'll definitely be posting photos to our Instagram of what the Jersey Devil looks like. Oh, please. Because, of course, there's no, like, actual pictures or anything, so it's all drawings, so there's, like, kind of different variations. Um, It totally is super, super creepy. Yeah. Looking. But, yeah, I'll I'll show y'all. <laughs> it actually legit blows my mind you didn't know what the Jersey Devil was. Never heard of it. That's I so thought it funny. was Snooki. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I need to stop. <laughs> oh, Nora. <laughs> All right. So mine's going to be a little bit longer than normal. So my grandma is such a cool person. So we were hanging out at her house a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the podcast. And she was like, have you guys covered any older cases? You guys should. And I was like, no, we do. Like, we've covered some older ones. Yeah. I just told her how to listen to the podcast. Aww. So I downloaded the it's podcast. On the <laughs> it's on the YouTube. I downloaded it, um, the podcast app onto her phone. Like, we set it all up. Aww. But so I was – sorry, that thumping is my dog's tail. <laughs> um So she was like, yeah, you guys need to cover some old cases. I was like, oh, we're going to. And she said, when are you guys going to do New Jersey? And I said, oh, we're going to do it sometime. She goes, I have a case for you. And so I'd heard this before, but she told me again about the case of this murderer who she knew. So I had her write down her story for us. And she's like, I have that at the end of this. So I'll read her word story at the end of this. But I'll give a little background and story about the guy first before that. Sorry, Roy. His tail. What are you excited about, buddy? (laughs) Um, All right. So mine takes place in Ramsey, New Jersey. So Victoria Ann Zielinski, a 15-year-old honor student and cheerleader, went missing on March 4th, 1957 on her way to a friend's house. At 1.45 a.m., her parents called the Ramsey police to report their missing daughter. Ms. Zielinski called again at 3.40 a.m. to check to see if the police had found her. By 4 a.m., Mr. and Ms. Zielinski got in their car to look for their daughter on their own. Around 9 a.m., her parents found her black penny loafer, which is a shoe, on the side of the road. Her headscarf, covered in blood, was also discovered. After Mr. Zielinski, Victoria's father, got out of the car to continue a search on foot, he found a pair of gloves lying in a sand pit only a few hundred yards from where the shoe had been found. Mr. Zielinski returned home to his wife, who had been sent home earlier to call the police, and together they waited for law enforcement to show up. The police, along with the Mawa Police Department's captain, Ed Wickham, arrived to the Zielinski house and the search continued. Victoria's body was recovered during the search on the banks near the sandpit. Her skull had been smashed repeatedly by what appeared to be a rock, which was later discovered to be a a 44-pound boulder and a baseball bat. The autopsy report stated, and I'm going to give a trigger warning for this because it can be a little graphic at this section. Mm -hmm. Um, There had been a, quote, total crushing of the skull, end quote. Her brain and left eye had been completely destroyed. Her teeth were hanging loosely, and her nose and jaw had sustained multiple fractures. Most of her hair was missing, and there was a hole in the back of her head. The The coroner ruled that, quote, there was no evidence of carnal assault, end quote, but Vicky was found with her sweater pulled up and her bra pulled down, with one of the straps snapped, meaning that force had been used to pull it down. Bite marks were also found on her left breast. Oh, my God. Her nails were chewed all the way down, which was weird because she wasn't known to bite her nails. Mm -hmm. So this murder obviously rocked the small town of Ramsey. Girls stayed in at night. No one went out to the lover's lane. People were just terrified. Mm -hmm. So when the murder was announced on the radio the next day, some signs pointed to one man. His name was Edgar Eddie Smith. 
Edgar Smith was born on February 8, 1934, in Hashbrook Heights, New Jersey. His father left him and his mother when he was only four years old, so he was primarily raised by his mother. And Smith was a smart guy. He had a reported IQ of 154. Wow. And I think that's like Mensa. Is that what that's called? Like the really smart people? Yeah. Um, But dropped out of high school where he attended Don Bosco High School and Ramsey High School. He joined the Marines after dropping out of high school as a flight crew member where he shuttled mail, troops, and supplies in the Far East during the Korean War. Okay. He was then discharged in 1954. I couldn't find if it was honorable, dishonorable. He was just discharged. Mm -hmm. Um, After his discharge from the Marines, he worked as a bartender, a truck driver, and a sewing machine salesman. Odd. Um. Yep. In 1955, he finally landed a high-paying job as a machinist. So that year, on June 9th, he married Patricia Horton, and the two of them moved into a trailer court in New Jersey. They had a daughter daughter together who was also named Patricia. Patricia! (laughs) So back when the two were married, marriage announcements were put in the newspaper. So my grandma actually has the newspaper announcement for Patricia and Edgar's wedding because she was actually one of Patricia's bridesmaids. Shut up. Yeah, so she was legit in their wedding. So the uh huh yeah okay wait um I have to say um Ash from Morbid always does that and I'm totally copying what I love that (laughs) I love Morbid all right so the announcement also documented what kind of dress the bride wore what she carried with her like it's crazy it just told you all about the wedding oh my god but so the bridesmaids dresses were described as quote pale yellow with matching straw headbands trimmed with daisies. They carried bouquets of glomelias and baby's breath, end quote. So you're welcome, Nora, for not giving you a pale yellow dress with a straw headband for your um, bridesmaid's dress. That literally sounds like what a flower girl would wear, yeah. not a bridesmaid. Flower girl's not wearing that either. Oh, boy. Thank but you. Thank you. You're welcome. Yellow you're on welcome. this pale skin, I would look literally <laughs> deceased. <laughs> it's a beautiful blue you get. So Smith was known as a handsome and well-liked kid. And during the time of the murder, Smith was 23 years old and at the time unemployed. He had been employed at an automotive muffler and seat covering shop, but was fired after only one week on the job. So you kind of see, you know, kind of who he is. So now I want to go over the night of the murder and why some of the signs pointed to Eddie. Mm -hmm. So on the night of the murder, Smith had borrowed a friend's car and began acting suspicious. He had planned to meet a friend at a bar that night. The friend's name was Joseph Gilroy. That's the friend who loaned him the car. But mm-hmm. Smith had excused himself early from that meeting, with Gil- which Gilroy thought was kind of odd. Mm-hmm. The car that Smith had borrowed had been seen at the scene of the crime. And the morning after the murder, Smith's friends had joked because Smith had been driving the exact same make and model of the car seen at the crime scene. Wow. And they were just joking. It was a 1950s light blue Mercury convertible. So after that, one of the friends claimed that Smith, quote, had a startled look on his face, end quote, after they had joked around with him about the car. So over 100 people were interviewed by the police to find out who had killed Vicky. One man, Joseph Gilroy, stated that he had let Smith borrow his car the night of the murder. When Smith had returned the car, Gilroy noticed that the floor mat had been cleaned. Smith stated that he had been sick, so he had thrown up all over the mat and decided to clean it before returning the car, which you would think is a nice thing that your friend does. Yeah. But only a couple days later, drops of blood were found in the car Smith had borrowed on the seats. This detail is what ultimately brought Smith in for questioning. So while he was being questioned, he was unable to account for for a half-hour period during the night of the murder. 
Soup hmm. suspicious. Curious. He also had missing pants when he had returned home that night. Huh. He told his wife that he had been sick on them and he threw them away. But because he threw them away, he was unable to account for where they could have been. But later, the police actually found the pants, and his wife was the one who indeed confirmed that they were Eddie's pants. Wow. So once he was confronted with all of the evidence that linked him to the crime, he ended up confessing. Well, confessing. Mm -hmm. On May 29th, 1957, Smith was arrested for the first-degree murder of Victoria Anzalinski. So we're going to go to trial. Of course, he was put on trial with a first-degree murder charge. Bergen County Prosecutor Guy W. Calissi described the murder as, quote, the most vicious, most brutal, and the most sadistic I have ever seen, end quote. Many witnesses came forward for the trial, but one of the main witnesses was Victoria's younger sister. Myrna's testimony went like this. She planned to meet Vicky at 8.45 p.m., but it mm-hmm. stated that they never actually met, so the last time she had seen her sister had been at 7.40 p.m. that night. So at 7.30 that night, Myrna had walked Vicky halfway to her best, friend, her best friend's house. So Barbara Nixon was Vicky's best friend. Myrna was going to walk her halfway. Vicky was going to continue, and Myrna was going to go back home. Mm-hmm. So Vicky and Myrna's house was only four-fifths of a mile from Nixon's house, just down Wickoff Avenue in the Ramsey Borough and in the township of Mawa. Myrna had walked with Vicky halfway where the two parted. She mm-hmm. had turned back to head home while Vicky had continued on to the Nixon's house. Vicky hadn't planned to stay long at Barbara's. I think they were watching a TV show or something. And it was getting dark, and she was uneasy about walking alone on a dark road by herself. So mm-hmm. obviously, I can't blame her at, art at all. Myrna had agreed that when Vicky was ready to come home, she would start walking towards Barbara's house. Vicky would start walking home. They would again meet in the middle and walk home together. Mm-hmm. So they would meet near the adjacent West Crescent Avenue, and that's where they would continue the walk. Mm-hmm. They both agreed to begin the walk towards each other at 8.30. So they would both leave the houses at 8.30 and start walking to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, Myrna had left a little later than expected at around 8.40 p.m., so she walked a little bit quicker to meet up with Barbara faster. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, to meet up with Vicky faster on the way to Barbara's house. Right. So Myrna arrived at the Nixon's house about 10 minutes later, but hadn't encountered Vicky at all along the route. And this was virtually the only route that would have led from Vicky's house to Barbara's house. So they had to have passed each other. They would have passed each other. So when Myrna arrived at the Nixon's house, she spoke to Barbara, who had said that Vicky had already left her house about 10 minutes earlier. So the road the girls would be traveling on was called Wickoff Avenue. Each of the families, the Zelenskys and the Nixons, lived off of this road. So this was a residential bordering on rural road, which was surrounded by woods on each side, with homes sparsely placed along the side of the road. So Mm -hmm. not like where we live, where the houses are right next to each other. They're kind of separated. So the intersection where the two had planned to meet, West Crescent Avenue, was where the sidewalk and streetlights began. So the first half of the walk, the part Vicky would have been walking alone, wasn't very well lit. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a sidewalk. And she would have had to walk on the very side of the road, virtually on the road, because there was no sidewalk. Mm -hmm. So coincidentally, both of the sisters left their locations at 8.40 p.m. to begin walking towards each other. So that, and even with Myrna quickening her pace, thinking she was late, she would have crossed paths with Vicky at some point. Mm -hmm. So some speculated that she didn't see Vicky because Vicky had accepted a ride from someone, but... But investigators believed that because Vicky knew she was meeting up with her sister, it would have been incredibly unlikely for her to accept a ride from someone. Yeah, or she would have been like, hey, can you drive this way? Because I want to, like my sister, I Mm want to stop and tell her, like, I got a ride. Exactly. Vicky's sister Myrna, her parents, and her best friend Barbara Nixon all testified at the trial. 
Myrna talked about her plan to meet up with Vicky and the exact clothes that Vicky had been wearing, which had been found at the crime scene. Her parents talked about how, where, and when they found her body. And Barbara Nixon explained how she was the last person to see Vicky alive, other than Smith, before mm-hmm. she was murdered. She had also lent Vicky the red scarf that I said was found at the crime scene, so it was just even more like yeah. knowing it was Vicky. Throughout the trial, Smith continued to say that the murderer was his friend Don Hamel. So Don Hamel, actually, my grandpa knew him. What? Yes. Like, they knew these people. Like, that's why this is such a weird case. Wait, okay. Are you going to go into, like, your mom meeting Eddie and, like, what he was like? Oh, yeah. Oh and it was gosh. my grandma. Yeah, I'll go this, into Or it. sorry, your grandma. I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is insane. Smith had a couple different versions of the events that occurred that night. So Smith blurted out at one point that he had been hit in the face by Vicky. His story goes... He had picked up Vicky in this borrowed car and attempted to take her to Lover's Lane. She revoked mm-hmm. his advances, and as she attempted to leave the car, he got mad and tried to grab her. He didn't continue on with this version, though. Another version goes, because of course he has two versions. Yeah. He was driving down the road that Vicky was walking along when she waved him, waved him down to pull over. She got into his car for a conversation. Smith then pulled into a dirt driveway that led to the local sand pit off Chapel Road because Vicky had asked him to. Vicky then told Smith that his wife was having an affair with the oil man. Smith got angry and told Vicky to get out of his car. Did He's, they even know each other? I don't know. So Smith sat in his car for a while, fuming over the news that Vicky had just told him, when all of a sudden he heard a commotion coming from the road. He said that he looked up and, though it was very dark, could see two figures approaching his car. He got scared and, for protection, grabbed the baseball bat he kept in his back seat. He stated that he believed these two figures to be Vicky and her father. But Smith continued to contradict his story this whole time. So he also said that from the spot he parked at at the Sandlot, he had observed Don Hamel parked along Chapel Road. Though it was later established that there is absolutely no way Smith could have seen this car, because from his place on the sand pit where he was parked, there were things obstructing his view. So Mm -hmm. he wouldn't have had a clear view of Chapel Road anyways. So it's impossible he could have seen this. Um, Smith then said he realized it wasn't Vicky and her father heading towards him, but rather Vicky and Don Hamel. So Smith quickly realized that Vicky was bleeding from her head. So he asked Hamel what had happened, and Hamel stated that Vicky had fallen on the road and cut her head. Oh, how convenient. Mm-hmm. And since Smith is really great, he said that Smith claimed that Vicky had begged him to not leave her with Hamel. So he agreed and let Vicky sit in her car, letting her sit in his car, letting her rest with her head back on the head seat. Smith said that Hamel wouldn't let him leave with Vicky to take her to the hospital and instead pulled Vicky out of the car. So she had been pulled violently enough, apparently, that in the process, she had spattered Smith's pants and blood. So different from his throw-up story that he had previously told for why he didn't have his pants. Mm-hmm. Also, this is like, I don't know if they had like blood splatter experts at this time, but <sighs> this would be the time to call that person in the trial. time. And yeah. like I said earlier too, the cops had like recovered the pants. So they had these pants. Yeah. Smith then stated that he decided to leave the scene and let Don take care of the situation because he had decided that Victoria was Hamel's girl. Though this statement was never verified as being true, this wasn't a thing that people knew, Hamel had even encouraged Smith to leave. So, of course, Don was brought in and questioned as well, and he stated that he had been in the area around the time of the murder mm-hmm. and that he had, in fact, been casually seeing Vicky. But both his car and clothing had been checked and nothing was found, so he was cleared. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, the car that Hamel had been driving that night didn't fit the description of the car and had never 
and had even belonged to his employer. So he wasn't, it just wow. wasn't him. He tried to literally throw his friend under the bus mm-hmm. and it backfired. Ha. Huh? Three psychiatrists were also called to testify at the trial, and they said that they found Smith to have been sane on the night of the murder, but that he had sociopathic and antisocial, like an antisocial personality. It is also said, I'm unsure by who, this is kind of what the, I guess, attorneys or people believed happened. Mm -hmm. They believe that Smith had chased Vicky several hundred yards, then hit her in the head with a bat a bat that he already had in his car. Mm. And has, as he was dragging her back to where she eventually died, he paused at one point to get rid of the bat in a wooded area. This article stated, quote, a local conclusion of premeditation exists based on the significant time that elapsed, as suggested by the physical evidence at the scene, between the initial perpetration of the attack on Victoria and her actual murder, end wow. quote. So it only took the jury two and a half hours to deliberate, and he was found guilty. So he received the death penalty, he was going to get the electric chair, and spent 14 years on death row at the New Jersey State Prison. At this time, this was the longest time that anyone in American history had been on death row. In 1962, his wife Patricia filed for divorce and left him. In 1964, due to financial troubles, Smith had to become his own lawyer to defend himself further. So he went against all of Hamel's statements and claimed that his own statements were inadmissible as he had not signed anything when he had given his statements. He also challenged the medical report, which stated that determining Vicky's time of death had been difficult. So he's trying to use all of this to say oh he wasn't the person. Gosh. Though his appeals Damn. were continuously dismissed, his death sentence was postponed multiple times. So it just kept getting pushed back and back, which is interesting. Yeah. Also in 1962, Smith began to talk to William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of the National Review, and their friendship began in a weird way. So while Smith was in prison, the chaplain would give Smith different publications from the Pecking Review and the National Review to read. So the chaplain ended up transferring, and Smith no longer received these publications to read. While Buckley, who was the National Review's editor, learned that this man on death row was no longer receiving his, quote, weekly dose of politics and art, end quote. That he guy. Right? That he sent Smith a year's subscription of the magazine. This is how they began talking and formed their friendship. I say this in quotes. At some time, Buckley actually began to believe that Smith wasn't guilty after all, stating that the case was, quote, inherently implausible. So Buckley published an article in Esquire in November 1965 that said, sorry, there are so many quotes in this, that said, quote, Smith said he told Hamel during their brief conversation on the night of the murder just where he had discarded his pants. The woman who occupies property across the road from which Smith claimed to have thrown the pants swore at the trial that she had seen Hamel rummaging there the day after the murder. The pants were later found by the police near a well-traveled road. Did Hamel find them and leave them in another location, thinking to discredit Smith's story and make sure they would turn up? End quote. The article sparked national wow. media attention and drew the public's eye right back to Hamel. So this scrutiny of Hamel continued after the publication of Smith's book, Brief Against Death, was published in 1968. He wrote a book. Which my grandma owned and let <gasps> me borrow. So it's actually in my room. I can show you what? after. Yeah. Um, Smith then, a couple years, well, that year, won a literary award for this book on October 17th, 1968. That's my sister's birthday. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So this book mainly says that the prosecutors and police had used different coercive techniques and tactics to get his confession, that they kept him awake for more than 24 hours with very little food, all in an attempt to extract his conviction, or his confession. So after his 19th appeal in 1971, Smith was able to overturn his first-degree murder conviction and accepted the lesser charge of second-degree murder. 
So first degree murder is premeditated, which they talked about, like I read at the beginning, where he had the bat in his car. He discarded the bat. He chased her. Like all of this seems premeditated. Mm -hmm. And second degree murder is not premeditated. So it was still believed, though, that based on testimony that his act was first degree and not second degree murder. Mm -hmm. But how was Smith able to get an appeal that eventually released him from prison, you may ask? Well, Judge John J. Gibbons, a U.S. Circuit Court judge, ruled that Smith's confession had been coerced. After Smith claimed that his appeal went against the fair nature of his trial and claimed that his confession had been tamed under duress, he also stated that he had been questioned for over 11 hours with very little sleep and little food. Mm -hmm. He also never signed the confession, which was used in his favor. So the original confession occurred eight years before the Miranda rights were introduced. So it actually held some weight to this when it came around to this time because his first, you know, couple appeals were before the Miranda rights. His Mm -hmm. next ones were after the Miranda rights. Mm. So even though it happened before, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. That same year, Smith was given a repeat trial. And in June, it was declared that his fession had been obtained unfairly. Wow. This is when he was offered parole if, under a deal approved by Judge Morris Pashman, he would accept a second-degree murder charge, which, like I said, he did. So he literally got out of this first-degree murder charge only to accept second-degree murder charge to get out of jail. So the reason he was released right after he pled for— He was released? Mm-hmm. He was released after he pled guilty to the second-degree murder charge. This was because in New Jersey, the sentence for a second-degree murder charge at the time was shorter than the time that he had served— So he got time served and was able to get out of prison. Wow. On December 6th, 1971, at the age of 37, Smith pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was released from Trenton State Prison. After his release, Smith went to lecture and make television appearances about his case. He then published a third book called Getting Out and began advocating for penal reform. So that didn't last very long, though, because after a few years, he fell out of the spotlight, began drinking heavily, and eventually fell into debt. So a fun fact— He apparently wrote another book titled 71 Hours under the pseudonym Michael Mason, and I just thought this book was weird. So this book, quote, recounts an attempted assassination of a Soviet premier at Kennedy International Airport. I mean, apparently this book did really well. So he was like a, like, author. So Smith married his second wife, a 19-year-old named Paige, and moved to San Diego. Oh, my gosh. Someone else would marry him? Mm-hmm. That's, wow. In October 1976, while Smith was in San Diego, he kidnapped a 33-year-old woman named Lefteria Lisa Osborne at knife point when she got off of work in the parking lot of a Tula Vista garment factory. He had <laughs> grabbed her from behind and put the knife to her throat saying, quote, keep your mouth shut or I'm going to cut your throat right here. Smith had attempted to pull her into his car and drive away, but Osmond had resisted. He did eventually get her in the car, though, and taped her hands together in a hurry. Osmond pleaded with Smith, telling him that she was a mother, he could have all of her money, anything to get out of the situation, because she sensed that she had to do something or he really would kill her. Mm -hmm. Smith was taking them down the interstate when Osmond decided to make her move. So her hands are still tied. She began kicking the windshield. She was then able to get her hands free and was able to grab the steering wheel, honk the horn, and yank the steering wheel to the side. Yes. Wow. So at this point, Smith stabbed her in the side, but Osborne continued to fight and eventually got the car to skid off a ramp and end up in a ditch on the side of the road. She threw herself from the car with the knife still in her side. Oh my gosh. So a wonderful man was nearby selling flowers, and he ran to help Osborne and was able to record the license plate of Smith's car as he drove away. 
Yes. Thank goodness. So Osmond escaped with her life, but did have a punctured diaphragm and lung. The knife had missed her heart by mere inches. Wow. And thank goodness for the flower salesman, though, because with the information about the vehicle, it was able to be traced back to his new wife, Paige, the 19-year-old. Oh, my God. So Smith then was on the lam for two weeks after this incident. He made his way to Las Vegas and was hiding at the Fremont Hotel under the name of Bob Fennedy. While he was in Las Vegas, he decided to call Buckley, his old friend. Oh, wow. But Buckley was out of town when Smith called, so he ended up leaving a message along with his phone number and where he was staying with Smith's secretary. When Buckley received the message, he immediately notified the FBI and told them where Smith Ooh. was. When the FBI agents arrived at the hotel he was hiding at, they found him asleep and arrested him. He didn't resist. He just went along with the arrest. That's when you know. He was arrested in Las Vegas on October 13th, 1976. He was taken to the Clark County Jail and held on a $500,000 cash-only bail where he was, while he was awaiting extradition back to San Diego for his kidnapping charge. Wow. When back in San Diego, he was being held on a $250,000 bond, but the San Diego Superior Court judge reduced this bail to $100,000. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's a violent crime. And he did it before. Yeah. Like, allegedly. Second degree murder. I know. But still murder. Yeah. The second arrest really sparked hope for Anthony Zelensky, Vicky's father. He stated that after his release, he had been praying that Smith would mess up and be locked up permanently, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. But he did have a really good quote saying, quote, a rattler will give you a warning when it's going to strike again, but a copperhead snake will never warn you. It'll strike a second and third time if you let it. Smith is a human copperhead. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's such a good analogy. I read that. I was like, this has, I have to say yeah, this. Yeah, that's so good. So the second crime, the kidnapping, drew media attention and turned that attention to Buckley, Smith's defending attorneys, and the psychiatrist who had stated that Smith was good and would be able to return back to public life. In 1979, Buckley, who now by now was a famous law and order conservative, Ugh. wrote an article about how he had been won over by Smith's claim of innocence, something that Buckley came to regret. So he full-heartedly believed Smith was innocent of his first crime. And then he was pretty much saying, like, after the second crime, he realized he had been completely fooled by Smith and that Smith actually wow. was guilty. So the trial for the kidnapping of Osborne was set for November 16th. She thankfully survived and was able to testify against Smith in court. While in court, she stated about Smith and the situation, quote, I could see it in his eyes. I'd never seen eyes like that. They were so cold and filled with hate. I knew if I didn't fight, I would never see my kids again. Oh, Gives you chills. One psychiatrist who had never spoken to or met Smith says, quote, both the Selinsky murder and the Osmond kidnapping fit the pattern of a psychopath's actions. And the way he was able to convince mm-hmm. Michael, was that his name? Um, William Buckley. William. That he was, like, that he was, you know, completely yeah. Only a sociopath, I feel like, could do mm-hmm. that. They know, they don't know their own emotions, but they know how to portray emotions. Yeah. Deputy Sheriff Johnny Bolden was quoted saying, quote, he told her he was going to rob her, stick the knife in her, and get rid of her. This part is kind of annoying. Smith, knowing that a kidnapping charge held more jail time than a rape charge, claimed he was a, quote, mentally disorganized sex offender and that his intent when he kidnapped Osmond had been rape. So by claiming that it had been rape and not just kidnapping, he could get a lesser sentence and he would be placed in a mental hospital rather than going back to prison. And also, so annoying, also being charged with rape allowed for the possibility of parole Where a kidnapping charge would not give you the possibility of parole. Please don't tell me they fell for that. 
He stated, quote, I do not seek freedom. I seek only to be recognized for what I am Ugh. and to be sent where I can be helped. Hell. He then said, quote, if, Your Honor, I am in fact a mentally disordered sex offender and I am sentenced to the penitentiary for 10, 15, or 20 years, I'll still be a mentally disordered sex offender. If there is some way that Edgar Smith can receive treatment, there is a possibility that I can turn into a human being. No. End quote. That ship sailed. I roll horrible. Mm. Oh my gosh. So he said that while he was on the, oh God, this part also infuriated me. He also said that while he was on the run after his stabbing of Osborne, he had visited Vicky's gravesite. He was quoted saying, for the first time in my life, I recognize that the devil I had been looking in, I had been looking at in the mirror for 43 years was me. It was at this time I recognized that my life had reached a point at which I had a choice of doing two things. I could kill myself or I could return to San Diego and face what I was. So I literally wrote in my notes, <gasps> such a noble man, I roll. Oh, gosh, I hate him. I do, too. So he was charged with four crimes, um, kidnapping for the purpose of robbery, attempted robbery, attempted murder, and assault with a deadly weapon. So thankfully, uh, thank God he didn't rape Osbin. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did stab her, which is horrible, but he didn't get the rape accusation so he yeah. didn't get you know the lesser sentence the going Thank to a mental goodness. institution um he was instead found guilty of kidnapping with the intent to rob and attempted murder he was again sentenced to life but this time without the possibility of parole because okay, he didn't get good. that right that's charge. <clears throat> that's what i like to hear <laughs> yep so in 1979 he filed for divorce against page who was the second wife after that divorce he ended up remarrying again to the mother of one of his cellmates the name i could not find and at some point while in jail, Smith was beaten in his cell when deputy is quoted saying, quote, the only thing lower than a rapist in the prison pecking order is a child molester. If he was beaten, it's no surprise. It happens all the time. It's almost a ritual. Yeah. And then the guards just move, um, turn their head. Mm -hmm. yep. So as I said, he was given the jail sentence without the possibility of parole, but later legislation decided that he should be given the possibility. Why? I literally wrote my notes, the fuck? Oh, my so, God. So in 1988 and 1990, Smith tried to appeal his new sentence but was turned down each time. In February 2004, another appeal hearing was scheduled, but Smith postponed it on his own. As of late April 2009, Smith, who was now 75, had again been denied parole and was told that he would be unable to apply for parole again for another 15 years. So thank goodness. Good. He was incarcerated at the California Medical Facility located in Vacaville, California. He remained there until his death on March 20th, 2017. Good. So very recent. But <sighs> that yeah. That is absurd. I can't see where people would think he was innocent, but I'm glad that there was another thing that really showed like he was this bad guy. Yeah. So, when my grandma told me her story, I said, can you please type that up and send it to me in an email so I can read it on the podcast? Yeah. So, I have her email. So, this is what my grandma said. And this is all quote from her email. I met Eddie at a high school party held at the home of one of my friends. He showed up uninvited. Eddie was what we called a bad boy. Good looking in an Elvis kind of way with a ducktail hairdo and a bad reputation. That's where he met his future wife, a good friend of mine. So this was Patricia. Mm -hmm. They dated for a while, and in the summer of that year, she became pregnant. She kept the pregnancy a secret from the rest of us, since at that time, an unplanned pregnancy ruined your reputation. Mm -hmm. They planned a quick wedding. I was a bridesmaid and still have the gift she gave me. So the gift was a bracelet that has my grandma's name written on it. 
Eddie didn't like me very much since I had told his future wife that he had been cheating on her. She chose to believe him when he denied it. After they married, they moved into a small trailer. Eddie had trouble keeping a job and they were very poor. My friend remembers Eddie asking her to come to the hospital with him after the baby was born to help take them home to the trailer. Eddie dropped them off and left. The trailer was a huge mess. Eddie had apparently been partying while his wife was in the hospital. She put the baby in the crib and started cleaning up. I remember visiting her once and being offered a cup of tea. They were so poor that she had used the same tea bag over and over. On the night of the murder, a friend and I were deciding whether to visit his wife in their trailer. Eddie had said that he wanted a black kitten, and my friend and I were going to go to the local vet to see if he had one. We got to the vet's office after it had closed and spent some time debating whether to visit his wife anyway. We knew Eddie was rarely home. We decided to not go since it was very cold and the trailer wasn't very warm. That turned out to be a very lucky decision since we would have been at the trailer when Eddie showed up without his pants. He told his wife that he had thrown up on his pants and had to throw them out. The day after the murder, I heard about it on the radio. A friend was away at college in Pennsylvania and heard the news. Her first thought was, Eddie did it. Shortly thereafter, he was arrested. My father was so concerned that I would be called to testify at the trial that he was going to send me to California. We didn't know anyone in California. I wasn't called to testify, and my father wouldn't let me attend the trial. After the trial, Eddie's mother hired a private investigator. I drove with his wife and the investigator into New York one evening to interview someone who supposedly had information that would help Eddie in his appeal. It was a very bizarre evening. This person lived in an apartment and had pet pigeons flying around. Oh, Across the hall was a relative of Mike Todd. There was a Western Union telegram taped to his door informing him of the death in a plane crash of Mike. Mike was the third husband of Elizabeth Taylor. Wow. And so then she sends another email. No, I think I must have gone with a private investigator around March 23rd, 1958 or so. It had to be during the trial, not afterwards. One other thing not relevant to Eddie. After his wife, Pat, divorced... She started an affair with a guy in my hometown who owned a plumbing store. He divorced his wife and married Pat, and they moved to Colorado, which I did see articles stating that, like, she had moved to Colorado, which there was so much posted in the newspapers back then. Oh, my god! So my grandma goes on to say, I lost touch with her pretty soon after the trial, so heard that only by gossip. I tried to look her up a few times, but can't remember the name of the guy she married. Their daughter was named Patty Ann, Patricia, Mm -hmm. Um, but with a name like Smith, that's impossible. Then she sends me another email. I kept remembering little things. Uh, During his trial, Eddie made the comment, quote, I'll fry in July, because he was going to have the electric chair. Then my grandma said, don't know if that made the papers. He also said during his trial in California, quote, I've only done two bad things in my life, end quote. So my grandma then talked to one of her close friends, and she, her friend, remembers that Eddie sold the tires on their trailer because they didn't have any money. She knew that she met Eddie at the hospital, so she was the one to help get Pat and the baby home to the trailer, but she doesn't remember how she got home since Eddie dropped them off and left. And so my grandma's telling me all this, like, you know, 62 years later. Um, Also, neither of them knew how Eddie found out about the party that I talked about at the way beginning. So that is the story of Edgar Smith. And the story of how my grandma and my grandpa literally were friends with Patricia and Eddie. Well, I guess not so much friends with Eddie, but friends with Patricia. And, wow. You know. Even they knew there was something off with him mm-hmm. and told Patricia that he that she was being cheated on. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yeah. They knew Don Hamel. Like, it was just, I would find something out about this case and I would ask my grandma. And she's like, oh, yeah, we knew him. We knew this. Oh we knew gosh. this. Did they keep in, do you know if they kept in touch with Don? I don't know. I'll have to ask. But my grandpa knew Don more, I think, than my grandma did. So I don't know if she would have kept in touch. But Yeah. Wow, Lauren. Yeah. That's 
Wow. I know. And you always think like, I have no connection to true crime. And then you hear something like this. Like, and then you're like, oh. I remember my grandma told me this story a really long time ago because I've always been super into true crime. But I don't know why it didn't click to do this for New Jersey. So then we were talking about it. And I remember yeah. telling you, I was like, Nora, next date we're doing is New Jersey. Yeah, I remember that. So I, was I, like, oh, I had a good amount on? of time to work on this. I went through new, like my grandma literally has all these newspaper articles about the case. Wow, she, she has, was so close to it. Mm-hmm. And she has, like I said, the marriage announcement. She has the wedding invitation. It's crazy. Wow. And it's so crazy. He looked like just a normal dude. And at the time of the murders, he was actually a good looking guy. So it's just, it's just crazy. That is so insane. I'm so glad your grandma even is like, okay, because she totally could have been. My grandma is literally the coolest woman ever. I need to meet her. Oh my God. Oh, you'll meet her at the engagement party. We're having a COVID safe outdoor engagement party for me and Joe because we couldn't have it last year. But you'll get to meet her. She already knows so much about you. Oh, I can't wait to meet her. Oh my her. God, she's literally the coolest woman ever. She was a huge um, inspiration for the podcast, I would say. She's, I always heard about her. And oh, like, yeah. Yeah. She's, she just has some of the coolest stories. I'll have to find more that I can relate into like oh, different things we talk about. Yeah. She, Her and my grandpa just had such a cool life. Oh, All it. right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of me and Nora talking. This one was really fun to talk about, yeah. actually. I was really excited for Agreed. this one. Not that all the other ones haven't been fun. It was just this had like a personal connection, yeah. so it was pretty cool. I forgot we were recording for a little. I'm like, listening, and then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again for listening. If you guys have any stories you want to tell us, any true crime connections you have or haunted stories you have, please, please email us at a scary state podcast at gmail.com or what is it oh yeah instagram <laughs> instagram find us on instagram a scary state podcast and we will post pictures of things we talked about in this episode so that you can actually see what we're talking about so yeah check it out and we also are starting to put some of our stories on youtube so check us out on youtube just type in a scary state and then the state and you'll find us right there you'll see our logo yes you will that took us forever so please go listen (laughs) (laughs) so thank you so much and stay scary stay safe